Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation podcast that goes behind the scenes and in-depth with each month's cover story author. I'm your host, Dan Lucas, the Senior Director of Strategic Communication at U.S. Chess, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with an educational mission of empowering people through chess one move at a time. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button, or if you're already a member, please consider donating to us by clicking on the Give button. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print or digital copies of Chess Life and Chess Life Kids, promotional discounts at uscfsales.com, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. Now start your clock and let's listen to this month's edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. So it is a real pleasure to introduce Grandmaster Maurice Ashley to the January edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Maurice wrote our cover story on the 2018 Olympiad. He already was one of the most well-known people in the chess world, but he has cemented that by being the on-air analyst and color commentator for the St. Louis Chess Club's Today in Chess, an internet show that broadcasts most of the major chess events in the world. He shares those duties with our own senior digital editor, Jennifer Shahadi, and former U.S. champion Grandmaster Yasser Sarawan. Recently, he appeared on Comedy Central's The Daily Show, where he promoted chess and made a convincing case in his banter with the show's host, Trevor Noah, that chess is cool and builds character. He did a TED Talk, actually a TED-Ed Talk, on retrograde analysis. Both of these appearances can be found on YouTube. He is also an innovator, taking tremendous risks by organizing the Millionaire Chess Open in 2014 and 2015 with its guaranteed million-dollar prize fund. He had taken a similar risk with the HB Global Chess Challenge in 2005, which had a $500,000 prize fund. Further, he is an app designer and puzzle inventor. His work has earned a multiple community service awards from city governments, universities, and community groups, including induction into the U.S. Chess Hall of Fame and the Brooklyn Technical High School Hall of Fame. Welcome to the show, Grandmaster Maurice Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. One of the first things that jumps out at me, and not just because it's the beginning of the story of your Olympiad article, is that you ended up as the captain and coach for the Madagascar team. I, I'm sure there's a story involved in that. So why don't you share that story? A couple of years ago, I visited Africa uh, after a, a while because I'd, I'd been there uh, in the late 2000s to South Africa. But I really wanted to go back and explore a few more countries. And I went to three countries, Kenya, South Africa once more, and then Madagascar. And while I was there, I made friends with the head of the Chess Federation uh, there. And um, I just just got comfortable with them. I saw the young talent that they had there. And I wasn't really thinking about going to the Olympiad with them. In fact, that same year, I went to uh, coach as, uh, be the coach of the Ivory Coast team. But fast forward two years, and they were looking for a coach. And I just felt like it would be a great idea with all the young players that they had, that it would be fun to have, uh, have a chance to help them develop during the event. Did you completely focus all your time there, or could you not resist uh, poking in and peeking at uh, the, how the American team was doing uh, on their boards? Well, obviously, I was definitely looking at the American team a lot. I mean, the chance to repeat as champions with all those great players, plus the matchups were mouthwatering. I mean, there was no question that I had to watch what was happening with the U.S. team. Uh, but 
it's it's a long event, right? It's it's an, obviously it's a cl- classical chess event. So there's a lot of room not just to look at my team and look at the U.S. team, but look at many of the other human interest stories that were going on. And you could just see so much. It's my favorite event, frankly, in the world because it brings together the whole world to play chess. One of the things you mentioned in your article uh, to that point is that uh, I'm actually going to quote exactly what you wrote. You wrote, uh, additionally, the near 50-50 male-to-female ratio with most of the top female grandmasters in attendance made it clear how much our game transcends all barriers and how far we still have to go to achieve real parity. So uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. What what countries kind do you think maybe are models for uh, for a, a parity example in chess? Who's doing it well? Who's not doing it well? I think you see the star countries all the time on the female side. Uh, you see Russia clearly maintains its strength, uh, uh, even though they don't seem to be able to win recently. But obviously, they had many victories in the past. You see China on just, I, I can't even call it the rise anymore because they're just such a dominant power. You expect them to win almost every single time despite the competition and despite the fact that their number one player, you know, the number one ranked female player on the planet who you find didn't even play in the event. And they still won. Uh, so that's real good, good example. The home team, Georgia, home country, uh, the Georgian women continue to regale because they get so much support and it's of high value for them to to see their their females compete and of course they had all those great champions and those champions Gapin Dashvili uh is Ilosiani they were all feted at the event I mean it was just like it was like goddesses walking the earth that's how they treated them so I think that we need to see more of that in other countries as well uh, of course now the, the U.S. is trying to, to push some of that here. You see the efforts of Susan Polgar uh, with her events. Um, you see the St. Louis Chess Club now introducing the Cairns Cup, bringing the top female players in the world to St. Louis. So I think innovations like that and steps that FIDE took, frankly, recently saying that they're going to change the world chess championship format for, for the women to be more like the men and to dramatically raise the prize fund. Uh, which they absolutely deserve, the women do. So I think we're, we're going to start seeing a nice little trend that hopefully brings a lot more parity to the game. And our, our women's team uh, really got off to a very strong, fast start uh, with five and five out of, um, uh, in the first five rounds to be in first place before they faded a bit. Um, what were your impressions of our women's team this year? Well, their performance was just absolutely stunning. It was amazing and fun to watch. They looked like the favorites at one point, the way they were winning left and right. Uh, We saw, of course, Irina Crush, who's won so many women's, U.S. women's titles. She showed her stuff on the world stage. And even when she was in difficult positions, she was able to turn it around and win the games. And of course, young Jennifer Yu, watch out. She is the wave of the future. If she keeps this up, there's no question about it. She'll get her GM title. I mean, GM, GM title. And we expect her on board one or two quite soon. Just, just incredible. I mean, she was an all-star many times. Like the, the lower, the, the lower boards were all about her and people like, uh, people like Tatev and Sabina 
we're very happy to say, look, let her play. I mean, she's balling it right now. So it was really fun to see the 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 competition, the camaraderie of the women's team as well. They all liked each other. They they dined together. It was just wonderful to see, and it bodes well for our team in the future. Let's move on to the open team. You know, and I want to kind of do this almost in a today in chess kind of way. You're you're so good with your color commentary. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm just going to throw out uh, the name one by one of our open uh, team. Just give us a quick impression of them, of what, especially what strength they bring to a team competition like the Olympiad. And let's start with Fabiano Caruana. Well, what can you say? Fabiano is just a fantastic player, absolutely well prepared. You're not catching him in the opening and accurate. When he sees a position in front of him, you know he's going to find the, the objectively correct move. He's not taking any chances. He's just finding the right move again and again and again. So a great leader. When the other guy messes up, he's all over them. Just You can just forget about it. He's cleaning up, and he just plays such incisive chess. Wonderful on board one. Let, let me pause on that a little bit because it's interesting to me uh, that uh, maybe we can use a little bit of your retrograde analysis uh, skills here. Fabiano raised some eyebrows by playing in the Olympiad um, when the world championship was just around the corner. Magnus, of course, did not play for Norway. In retrospect, what do you think uh, and what does the chess world think about Fabiano's participation? Did it help, hurt, or was it neutral? I think it helped. I think it got him in great form against some of the top players in the world who are fighting tooth and nail uh, to try to win games or neutralize him for their country. And I think that that kind of pressure can only help as a fighter. He had ample time to recover from the Olympia to play against Magnus. And you can see that he played extremely well, holding Magnus to a draw in the classical games. So I don't think it hurt at all. And a matter of fact, we should mention Magnus did play after the Olympiad. Uh, he, I believe, he played in the Euroleague. And so it's not about at all, For as far as I'm concerned, it was not at all about the Olympia tiring out Fabi in any way. I think it definitely helped him. Okay. So let's continue on your quick impressions. Uh, next is Hikaru Nakamura. Of course, we know him as a super blitz genius, rapid play. He has been having difficulty, of course, in classical chess this year especially. And that is a challenge that was a challenge for us at the event. I mean, he didn't pick up the kind of wins we expected from him uh, as he normally does. And I think he's lost some confidence. Uh, I don't know what it is because when he, when you put less time on the clock, he's a boss, but just lately, it seems that his classical game has definitely slipped. He's now number 16 in the world, which we're definitely not used to seeing him at. So let's hope he turns it around in the next couple of years. Wesley So. Wesley is Mr. Consistent. Absolutely. You know what you're getting with Wesley every single game. Absolutely reliable. And he's one of those guys. He's not the one who's thinking, I'm going to come in there and knock you out, you know, all guns blazing. But don't slip because he's ruthless when you have a bad position. Absolutely ruthless. He comes up with just tactical solutions. It'll be made on the board. or It'll be the maximum he can get out of it. Super sharp is his way of dealing with with uh, obnoxiously bad moves. <laughs> and that's just the way he plays. Uh-huh. And so it's it's great to see him anchoring any position with board two, board three. Uh, he's the guy you know is going to bring it for you every single game. Be consistent. 
I'm particularly interested in hearing your comments on our our next player, who is our latest super grandmaster in the 2700 level club, uh, Sam Shankland. Absolutely intense player personality. You feel his energy at the board. He gives it his all. Uh, he's the, he's so intense. Sometimes it's scary. I mean, it's like Sam, relax a little bit because he just feels like he should do the absolute best every single game. He's more demanding on himself than anybody could possibly be, and it's amazing to see. And it's no surprise. I mean, of course, him winning the U.S. Championship was a stunner. Plus six in that field against those bosses that he had to deal with, the, the big three. Well, now he's become part of the big four and will always be a threat to win championships from now on. So him on board four, that's a terrifying prospect for anybody playing against the U.S. team because they know we now have a legit super GM sitting on the fourth board. And then the next uh, – and. and- Completing the team is Ray Robson. Well, Ray, we know, is a super tactician, loves sharp positions, uh, loves to mix it up. Still a bit of a challenge for him is his time trouble, and I think that that affects his results, not giving him the maximum he can get. He's been doing okay, as much as a 2670 can be called doing okay, but I think that so he needs something to boost his game, something that's going to make him feel like he can rise to the level of a Sam Shanklin and maybe more. Uh, we'll see where he goes in the next couple of years because there are people hot on his heels. And I think that that pressure will be good for him. It'll be important for him uh, because you know, pressure is what really makes diamonds. And we'll see what you know Ray has uh, to shine, how he's going to shine in years to come. And you know, I was, as we looked at this, you know, this powerhouse team that was went in as the top-rated team in the Olympiad. Um, we just, uh, as we're speaking, just yesterday it was announced that Grandmaster Lanier uh, Dominguez of Cuba has switched federations to the U.S. Chess Federation, instantly giving us another world top 20 player. Um, what do you know about Dominguez? I know he's good. <laughs> That's what I know. Lanier <laughs> is a player. And, you know, there's no question about it. Uh, that's going to really shake up the team, make it even more solid. Uh, he's just such a tremendous player, the number one player in Cuba for so many years. He's been hanging out in the U.S. quite a bit. And I don't think it came as a shocker to anyone that that's what he wanted to do. Uh, but now that he's here, I mean, we're talking about he might be board four or reserve board. For a U.S. team that's already a powerhouse team, and that's just tremendous news for the United States and not great news for the rest of the world. But with a team that's uh, likely going to be all 2700s for us, do you think that China could still potentially in two years be the top-seeded team? Do, are, are they growing by leaps and bounds enough for that to happen? Or do you think that we're still the leading contender to be the top seed? I think that it has to be the U.S. team. Uh, still as the boss team. I mean, just look at board one. We have a player who Magnus Carlsen himself has said, this guy is basically the same as me. He has a rightful claim in Fabiano Caruana to consider himself the number one player in the world. And they're just percent, they're just a few rating points apart. Then you've got players like a Wesley So, who's obviously top 10. Hikaru Nakamura, who will settle down and come back to the top 10. You've got Dominguez. You've got Sam Shanklin, 
who we'll see if he rises, but he's I mean, he's not going to be board five. That's crazy talk. We already were beastie teams. Now, of course, the Chinese team does have some powerhouses. Ding Loren, beating him, <laughs> you just bang your head up against a wall. Uh, you also have Yu Yang Yi, who many people may not know, but he's rising. I think he's top 15 in the world right now. Uh, he played in a few millionaire chess events, and I knew he had the heart and, uh, of a champion back then when I saw him, and he's realized himself. But it's going to be the bottom boards in China that really make the difference. If Wei Yi can get out of his funk, I mean, people have been sort of waiting for this young genius to rise into the, the elite elite, but he seems to have stalled a little bit around 27, 30-ish kind of territory, uh, maybe a little bit less. And so un- unless, unless he breaks out, because I don't see the other players necessarily breaking out, unless he breaks out, I don't see China running away and you know, necessarily being the top seed. They'll always be competitive. That Chinese team, they're on a string. I mean, they play like a team. They play together. They have that camaraderie. They're doing it for, for themselves and for country. So they're always going to be competitive. But I think the, the U.S., the way the trend is, will always will, will continue to to probably be the number one ranked team in the world. Well, you know, it, it's amazing uh, for those, especially for those of us that grew up in an era of Soviet dominance to even be talking about the U.S. in such terms. So, it, it, so it's wonderful to hear you confirm that. <laughs> that Soviet Union no longer exists. I mean, now it's about all these splinter federations. And of course, if, if you could bring all together, you know, you told guys like, Mamadirov into their orbit, right? and suddenly they'd, they'd be the favorite team again. But that time is done. Russia now, uh, they've even gotten players like Karyakin, who was from the Ukraine, right? who's now in Russia, and so who's now plays for their team. So you, you no longer have that era from the past. Times have definitely changed. We've seen the number one player in the world is no longer Russian. Uh, the number two player is not Russian. The number three player is not Russian. <laughs> like, What's going on here? Well, times have definitely come and gone, and now we have a very international sport. Well, let's take a step back from the hard chess of the Olympiad. Uh, I'm going to quote something else you wrote in your article. Um, if I avoid giving details of the rest of the night, well, let's just say that every adult chess fan should visit a Bermuda party at least once in their lives. Now, keep in mind that this is a family-friendly podcast, but fill in some details for us. Well, the Bermuda Party is a chance for the players from all over the planet to come together and have a good time. And I think that most of the time what we know about chess players is what we see online and them playing and what we see uh, reading magazines, right? That's, that's what you get. You don't get a true sense of their personalities, what happens when uh, they're not at the chessboard, fighting it out, looking for novelties, looking for brilliant moves. But they're just hanging out. Music is playing. Music is blasting and and folks are imbibing a little or a little too much. You get a chance for that. I think everybody lets loose, especially after five rounds, and they feel so good to be hanging out all together. And especially for the countries who don't have the big chess stars, but they send their players to the Olympiad every couple of years and they get to rub shoulders with the best of the best of the best. And those people are so excited. The top players are excited as well to be hanging out with each other in this, this convivial uh, party atmosphere that it's just fun. And 
people just have a lot of fun. It's a great, it's the party of the year. No question about it. The whole chess planet coming together to have a good time. You know, given the intense level of chess and concentration that's going on every day and then uh, on the off day, having this per- this party as well, it, it, it sounds like the kind of event where you it takes weeks to recover from. Not really. You know, it's not on the off day, by the way. It's the night before the off day. So it's on the day of the fifth round. So it's the night after people have played. So again, they're happy to let loose and relax from five intense days of chess. They also know they can party as late as they want, can go till 4 a.m., and beyond because the next day they'll just get to sleep the whole day and relax. And so that's another reason why I think, you know, it's so much fun. So now it's time for our best question contest, which is sponsored by U.S. Chess Federation Sales, which you can find at uscfsales.com. If you're interested in participating for future podcasts, send your question to podcast at uschess.org. If your question is selected as the best question, then you will win that $50 gift certificate. So today, Maurice, we have two questions. Um, the I'm going to save the best question for last. The first question, though, comes from Women's International Master Alexi Root. She wants to know, what is your favorite part of chess? Playing the game yourself, writing about it, commenting on events live, or something else? That is a really interesting question because I love it all. (laughs) But I think that if you picked me up and just threw me down and said, okay, there's only one thing you get to do in chess, I think it would be commentating. I love to talk about the game. It, It mixes watching with thinking about moves yourself and also being engaged with the top players on the planet. It's a dream come true. Really. I cannot believe I have this job and I get to travel around the world to all these exotic places. Now the grand chess tour is going to be in Croatia and India and Ivory coast and already at adding to Paris and, and live in Belgium and London. And it's like, a little boy from Jamaica growing up in Brooklyn, going over chess moves and being regaled by the greatest players of all time to actually get to hang out with them is it's unbelievable. And I, I'm curious about this because, you know, it's no secret uh, what a physical toll and effort it is to uh, you know, play a classical game in, in under tournament settings. And it's the reason why so many grandmasters now make an effort to stay in shape. But when I watch you uh, on your Today in Chess broadcast, and you're standing for hours at a time in front of the analysis board, jumping from game to game, uh, whichever is one is most interesting or exciting at the moment, it is exhausting just to watch you do this. Which is which is more exhausting for you, playing in a tournament or doing the analysis? Oh, definitely playing. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're putting your entire effort trying not to lose, and that emotional toll uh, is just just so st- stressful uh, because you're every single second it matters what decision you make. When you're doing com- when I'm doing commentary, yes, trust me, I do. Uh, bust my colleagues' chops so they get to sit in the chair, the two chairs, Yasser and Jen, (laughs) and talk about the moves while I'm standing up there for hours and hours. I do get to sit during the breaks, of course, and I sometimes will grab a chair when they're speaking off camera, when I'm off camera, and sit down for a second and rest my feet. But, uh, you know, it's it's fun. Uh, It's just so much fun 
to be able to be in every single moment of the game and look for something exciting to tell the fans, something, something that's going to excite me. And when I see a variation, you know, I'm up there working with a computer and I see some variation that's out of this world. I can't wait to share it. It's like, look at what our game uh, is capable of. I mean, look at this possibility. It's stunning how beautiful it is. And so for me, it's just a ton of fun at the end of the day. No, I, I get my shoes off, <laughs> try to relax my feet. But, you know, I try also, also stay in shape, go to the gym a lot, and I dance a lot of salsa, as people probably know. So hopefully I can keep it up for years to come. Okay. And our the best question comes from Gabe Pruitt from Louisville, Kentucky. And this is a very common question. So I, I, I thought it was um, worth asking to you, uh, someone with your experience. It's, what is the one practice method or discipline you would recommend for a player struggling to get past the twelve to 1400 level? You know, those are some days from long ago for me. <laughs> but I'll say that I do teach young people a lot and coach folks. And I think that the most important thing to do is go over classic games, classic games, classic games, classic games. You will never go wrong by looking at the games from the great players of the past. One of my favorite books is Logical Chess, Move by Move by Irving Chernev. And it goes over classical games. I'm talking about classic games, games of the, the greats from the past. But every single move explained and re-explained and re-explained. And Going over those games gives you the absolute foundation of chess and how you handle position from opening, middle game, end game. And you cannot get enough of them. We're just reviewing them. You start to get some of those ideas in your own head. And you don't want to go over them quickly. That is would be a mistake. What you want to do is go over them move by move and try to guess what move you would play. And do that dil- just diligently. And don't skimp on it. Give yourself a minute, minute and a half, and say, okay, if I had this position, this is what I would think I would do. And then you look over and go, oh, that's not what they did. <laughs> What's going on? Okay, why did they do that when I thought this? And that comparison will constantly, uh, over time, actually, start to give you a sense of what better moves look like and what, what the difference is, and you'll grow from it. So classic games, but with an eye to try to solve the moves, what you would play when you're in the position with the top player. And by the way, that works for every level. What I love about that answer, especially, uh, and you bringing in the Chernev uh, book is, you know, you're certainly a modern male. Uh, you're, you're, you live your life in front of a smart board, it seems at times, uh, using all this analysis. But at the very basic, uh, a classic chess text is still what you recommend. Absolutely. And I have to tell you, when I was working with the Madagascar team, it pained me like a stabbing pain in my chest when I said, who here knows the world champions? Can you name uh, the, the players from the past? Do you know the names of Steinitz and Lasker and Capablanca? I mean, I could name the world champions starting from the first and go all the way through to Magnus in order when ye- what years they were champion. When did Botvinnik lose his title? Who did he tie? Like They couldn't. There were so many names. They said, who? What? When I said Kasparov to Palov, do you know the, the epic contest that Kasparov played against the Palov considered one of maybe the greatest game of all time? And they scratched their heads. And I was like, are you joking? Are you mad? How could you not know this game? And other, I, I can tell you, I instantly said, okay, I've identified the problem here. <laughs> you guys are 
computer kids and you think that everything that happened in the last five years is basically all of chess and anything before is ancient history. No, we, we play because we rest on the shoulders of giants and you've got to study the classics and every top player, including Magnus and Fabiano, they can quote their classics instantly. So it will never get old to look back at the past and the great games that, that have been played. Well, Maurice, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for joining us. Readers, you're going to really enjoy his article uh, on the Olympiad in the January Chess Life. It's full of the color that you, you've you come to know and love when you hear Maurice speak. Uh, that comes across in his writing. So, Maurice, thank you for taking the time with us. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. It's time for our monthly segment, Checking In with Jen, where we talk to our senior digital editor about Jennifer Shahadi, about everything happening on our digital platforms. Welcome, Jen. Hello. Happy New Year, everyone. And Happy New Year to you. And uh, while it's always exciting to have uh, be heading into a new year, the, the one thing for us is it's a little bit of a slow time of year on the U.S. chess calendar, uh, which maybe we, we deserve that break after having such an exciting fourth quarter of last year. Well, yeah, it's hard to beat an Olympiad, a world championship, K-12 championships, multiple world championships, right? I mean, if every month were like that, I, I think that... Uh, chess media, let alone the chess players, would uh, get any rest at all, right? Right. And I think you and I could also probably build U.S. chess for hazard pay uh, supplements <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, so but so maybe we should take a step backwards and look at something that someone might have missed in December. And that was a Sports Illustrated article that you were quoted in. Yeah, I was interviewed in depth by the Sports Illustrated art, um, writer, Emma, and she wrote a fantastic article about women in chess and particularly about the prize money gap. She talked a lot about the Women's World Championship in uh, November that coincided directly with the World Championship match in London and talked not only about the fact that there was this huge prize differential, but there also wasn't really a lot of attention paid to the women. Um, And I was quoted at length as well as Maureen Grimaud, who's in charge of the the committee, the U.S. Chess Women's Committee, which is really a fantastic committee, which has done so much work, including another very successful girls club in Orlando. So I'm the staff liaison on that committee, and I'm doing a lot of um, work for them, which is actually only going to increase in 2019. So I was really excited to see it. And honestly, the article was a lot different than other articles about women in chess, I thought. It, It seemed a little bit more opinionated, that she had like a strong view on the subject and she really went with it, which I thought I liked because I agree with the viewpoint. Yes. And while this was a great article, unfortunately for me, it it, it kind of uh, makes one of my favorite chess trivia questions. It's going to be, I'll probably get a little bit less bang for the buck with it, in, which is who was the first chess player to ever appear on a cover of Sports Illustrated? That's right. Lisa Lane. Yes. I talked about her in my first book, Chess Bitch, actually. And uh, I, I got a chance to interview her, but she only talked to me for a few minutes. And it, the Sports Illustrated writer really reached out to Lisa and got a lot more information about, you know, why she left the game and kind of her perspective on it. Yeah, it was really fascinating to kind of relive that. That it, at the time of Lisa Lane, she was on the Olympic team alongside some very very wealthy ladies. And these giants of women's chess history, like Gisela Gresser, 
um, were um, incredible players, but they were also very wealthy. And I think that that's something that we see in chess a lot because to become one of the best players, it's so important to have this nice family structure and the ability to travel and hire coaches. Um, so in some level, it's a very accessible sport because a computer and a chess set will get you very far. But then when you reach the very high level, you really need that support. Yes, absolutely. And uh, by the way, listeners, that Sports Illustrated cover dates to 1961. Uh, so well before Bobby Fischer, if you're wondering why Bobby Fischer wasn't uh, the, the one on the on the cover. I shouldn't say well before Bobby Fischer because he was certainly a U.S. champion by that point. Uh, but as, as, as far as... Uh, he wasn't considered Sports Illustrated cover worthy apparently by that point. And that was a 19, she was a 1959 U.S. Women's Chess Champion. And I just would like to mention though that since that time, even though it does really help to have a lot of, you know, a lot more money to be able to pay for coaching and travel, the nice thing is that a lot of philanthropists and organizations have stepped up to provide that for talented players. So you see it kind of all over the country that players are being supported to go to these events if they um, reach a certain level. So I, I don't want to paint it as this thing where, you know, you can't succeed in chess if you don't have resources. But if the resources are coming from your family as opposed to organizations, and it obviously gives you a little bit of a leg up to start. But there's still lots of opportunities out there. Now, so one thing you said that I'm I'm curious about and I want to follow up on is you said that Lisa Lane only spoke to you for a few minutes uh, for your book. Was, was that because she had no interest in talking further or what was up with that? I think she didn't have the most uh, positive memories of chess. She was a little irritated about it. I, I remember her also telling me a story that was similar to the one in chess in Sports Illustrated, where she said that it started to get irritating that people would just always think it was like so funny and cute that she was like a women's chess champion at parties. And she felt like it was kind of like a party trick. Like, oh, here's this really attractive woman. Can you guess what she does? And of course, nobody would guess that she was a chess player. And it'd be like really funny, right? Somehow that made her extremely uncomfortable. Like, I mean, that's happened to a lot, a lot of people, including myself. I remember when I went to NYU and I would go to like the bars around Williamsburg, that kind of incident happened to me constantly. And I just, I mean, I personally didn't have such a negative view of it. I thought it just depended on my mood. A lot of the time I thought it was like a funny way to meet people. Maybe if you're in a bad mood, it was irritating. But I think that kind of comes down to the essence of women's and girls chess, which is that you get a lot of attention, both positive and negative. And it just depends on what type of person you are. Is that going to be something that you welcome and enjoy, or is it going to be something that turns you off and causes you to quit chess? And as being like an advocate for women and girls in chess, I'm really focused on the people who um, don't like the attention because I want to make sure that um, they're still comfortable and that we keep them in the game. So kind of like just, uh, you know, personality tips for people who meet people like who are do something that they wouldn't expect. Uh, that sometimes it's actually considered condescending rather than flattering if you go on about how surprising it is that they are a chess player. So I think a lot of the times it's about the other person. And uh, like I, I always like to say, don't ask people the same questions that they always get asked, right? And it sounds like for somebody like Lisa Lane, she got irritated that she was constantly getting asked about separate women's tournaments and how shocking it was that a beautiful young woman was a chess champion. Yes. And, you know, just to, to put it in the context of the times, uh, you know, 
women were not allowed to, to run marathons at the time. I, I, I know the, the theory was that uh, distance running would uh, cause their uterus to fall out potentially. Uh, and Catherine Switzer was the first to run the Boston Marathon in 1967, uh, which was six years after that Lisa Lane cover. Um, and she had to do it surreptitiously uh, and, in fact, was was tried to forcibly be removed from the race mid-race. So different times. And while we've made a lot of progress, still progress to be made, obviously. Indeed. And uh, that brings us to another um, exciting project that I'm going to be unveiling later in the winter at the end of January. Um, Ladies Night Chess Podcast with uh, me being the host. And you're going to be able to find that on the U.S. Chess website. I'm really excited about that. My very first guest is Alexandra Botez, who I think is actually probably one of the most famous chess players in the United States, which might sound kind of shocking to people who haven't heard of her. But the thing is, she's very famous in the esports world, which is this like kind of incredibly burgeoning industry. So if you're not in that world, you might not have heard of her. But if you are, you definitely have. Um, and she is, uh, you know, just this incredible personality, the most popular streamer in chess individually outside Hikaru Nakamura. And also she was a Canadian girls champion and many time member of the Canadian Olympic team. And it was really fun to talk to her because she's very successful in tech and in chess streaming. So I feel like at U.S. Chess, we're trying to make the game more popular and more relevant to young people and to people in entrepreneurial fields as well. So she was really a perfect initial guest for the, for the pod. Yes, that's fantastic. We're so excited about this new podcast uh, that adds to our, our, our growing U.S. Chess podcast uh, family. And it, this is all just value added to our listeners, our, our U.S. Chess members, anybody interested in the chess world. Uh, these, these are free for the download. And it's just all about us providing interesting content uh, on, a, on a daily and weekly and monthly basis for everybody. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to this first podcast. I definitely was unfamiliar with her before you brought her to my attention. So um, the, this is all a very positive development. Oh, yeah. And it's so much fun. I love, uh, t- I love having conversations with people. I mean, it's one of the fun parts of the job, no doubt. I also am going to talk a little bit in the podcast, not with Alexandra, but really just in the intro about the Karen's Cup, which is another really exciting project I'm involved in, which is a corollary to the Sinkfield Cup. It's actually going to be held several months prior in February uh, with 10 of the top players in the world. So as you're listening to this podcast, it's really only a month away And it's pretty thrilling because, of course, we have the U.S. Women's Championship in St. Louis. But it's nice to now have a tournament in St. Louis that features the very top women in the world. Because I really think that the young girls who are watching these broadcasts uh, will be inspired by the women that they see in this field. Yes. So look for more information on the ad in the center of your January issue, uh, listeners. It's the, the event is going to be February 5th through 16th in St. Louis. Um, I, I think it's interesting, Jennifer, why it's called the Karen's Cup. Why don't you tell the listeners why? Oh, Karen's Cup is actually the maiden name of Dr. Jeannie Sinkfield, who's the co-founder of the St. Louis Chess Club, along with Rex. So she's been super involved in the chess campus in the last few years. Um, Even like, what was it, five years ago that the Boy Scouts badge was unveiled? That was a project of Dr. Jeannie Singfield. And we're going to be doing another event with the Boy Scouts badge actually right prior to the Karen's Cup. Because just, I think it was, 
I think it was a year ago, or maybe it was uh, mid-2018, they announced that girls are now eligible to get Boy Scouts merit badges. So while there are still the Girl Scouts, now girls are also welcome in the Boy Scouts. Yes, and that'll only help with with this chess merit badge because uh, I, I think the last time I looked this up in 2017, the the chess badge was that one of the top ten badges uh, that the scouts were awarding. Oh yeah, it's phenomenal. I'm so excited that because a lot of people, of course, want the regular Girl Scouts get the badge, but this is a separate thing and it's very important as well because the boy I, I'm I've never been a scout myself, but I understand that the badge structures are extremely different for the Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts. They're not exactly the same and that, that ha- the, having girls be able to get the Boy Scouts badges are is really important because it's just kind of two separate organizations and different people might like um, different aspects of, of either. Well, Jen, even on a slow month, we have plenty to talk about. So thank you for filling us in on all, all that exciting stuff and good luck with the new podcast. Um, and have, again, happy new year. Thank you so much. Yes. Look for that podcast. I'll be putting it all over my social media channels as well. So if you look anywhere, if you drop a stone in our social media, us chess, Instagram, Twitter, or my own accounts at Jen Shahadi, you will surely find it. We're also going to have, um, Huga, who's this, um, incredible musician, um, well known for a song, Oh Capablanca. Um, doing the intro music and I'm really excited about that as well so um, yeah can't wait to hear from you guys and let me know if you have ideas for future guests on ladies night fantastic bye bye Jen bye Thank you for joining us on this January edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Make sure to listen next month when our topic will be the World Championship match between Magnus Carlsen and Fabiano Caruana. Write in with your questions about the World Championship by emailing podcast at uschess.org for your chance to win a $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Federation sales in our Best Question Contest. We are grateful to U.S. Chess Federation sales at uscfsales.com for their sponsorship. Our companion podcast, One Move at a Time, will be available on January 8th, and all archive shows are available at the podcast link you can find in the right margin at CLO on uschess.org. 